We begin today uh, the first message in our Christmas series. Can you believe Christmas is here again? I know. Uh, this year has gone fast, yes or no? Yes. It has just screamed by. I, I, I you know, I, the cliche they used to say was that when you get older, it seems to go faster. And I didn't think that could be true. Uh, it was prophetic, man. It, uh, uh, getting old happens much faster than you think it does. That's the, that's the truth of the matter. And uh, somebody just patted somebody on the back. Yeah, I, um, John, that's not nice to do that. It's not, it's not nice. Pastor Terry sent me his Christmas, his Christmas wish to Santa. He said, dear Santa, I want a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix it up like you did last year. <laughs> and I asked him for permission to share that, so that was good. So we start our series uh, on Christmas, and let me, let me do it this way, the word Advent. How many of you know what an Advent is? How many of you participated in one when you were younger or you're doing it now with your family? So um, my mom raised uh, three boys, and my mom uh, did this for us. We would participate in the Advent and celebrate it. Uh, anybody ever look back on your life and wish you would have taken more advantage of the things that happened to you earlier? I remember my mom, she would read the devotion. We would light the candle. She had three boys, I think, who fought her. Uh, on that, like, oh, not again, let's, come on, what do you mean we're going to light 25 candles, um, you know, and I, mom, I appreciate you doing that for us, and I, the things that I learned, I wished I would have taken more advantage of them at the time, but the word advent, listen, is a fancier way of saying arrival, so that when someone is paying attention to the advent, they're paying attention to the arrival, the season of Christmas begins after Thanksgiving and goes up until December 25th. Now, we know the reality is that, is that Jesus' actual birthday? No, it's not. It's a day that we picked to celebrate his birthday. So we look at this season and we celebrate this season as the time of Christmas and to get the most out of it so that it doesn't become just about materialism and it doesn't become just about the busyness and we're not waiting just to get through it to the other side of it. The way we get the most out of it is to prepare and to pay attention to what it's about. Does that make sense? So Advent means arrival, and it literally is this. It's a time of waiting and anticipating the coming of something or someone who is great. That's the name of our series, The King is Coming. And I say it present tense, not just past tense, and you'll understand as I teach the message today. So here's what I'm doing. I'll give it away to you real quickly. I'm going to look uh, prophetically at three scriptures that were spoken, one 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus, one 800 years and one 700 years before the birth of Jesus, that don't, they're not just like casually spoken, they are prophetically, accurately, with great detail spoken about the birth of Jesus. 1,500, 800, and 700 years before he was born. So I wanna show you those scriptures this morning and just show you how, how in your heart you can prepare to, to recognize the coming of Jesus, right? The birth of Jesus. But then prophetically, I want to show you scriptures that talk about the king is coming again. There's a second coming. And this time, not as a baby, but as king of kings and lord of lords. 
And so I'll show you those things. So let's begin uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. I know your first thought is, can anything good come from the book of Deuteronomy, Pastor John? Yes, there are many good things in there. But let me show you this because um, this helps us set up how to understand prophecy real quick. And this is how, um, this is how plain the Bible makes things. It's how simple the Bible makes things. So here would be my question. How, how can you trust prophecy? How do you know if you can trust prophecy? How do you know if it's accurate? How do you know when you read something like, I can put faith in that, or that's just someone's hope in something? So this scripture really puts it together. It's the Lord uh, speaking through Moses. So uh, you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? Simple question, direct, straightforward. Here's the answer. If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. Is that direct and simple? So paraphrase it. How do we know if it's from the Lord? It happens. The rest of that verse actually goes on to say there's one more sentence, and it says, if the prophet spoke and it didn't come to pass, then the prophet spoke presumptuously, and you don't need to respect that prophet. Wow. Puts a lot of pressure back on the prophet. Uh, we probably should pay attention and maybe hold people to a higher standard if they're going to speak in the name of the Lord. Yes, right? There should be a reality to it, and the reality is it either happens or it doesn't happen. You know, if someone is saying, I believe this could be from the Lord, that's great. Say you believe. But if you say, thus says the Lord, you need to be accurate on it. Agree with that. So why is that important right now? All right, I'm going to show you three prophetic scriptures that predicted 1,500 years, 800 years, 700 years B.C. that Jesus was coming. And they're not just casual, kind of out there. It could mean a number of things. They are uncannily accurate. One predicts the town he would be born in. One predicts the manner that the Lord would do it, the miraculous manner that the Lord would do it. And one is actually from the very beginning, from the fall of man, Adam and Eve. God predicts Jesus and what Jesus would do with the enemy. So that's where we'll begin today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, how do we know that it's from the Lord? It comes to pass. It's accurate. So Genesis 3, 15. Um, just to set it up very quickly, Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter after the fall. And so what we have going on, uh, the Lord God appears uh, in the afternoon. Every day he did this, to walk with the man and the woman, just to hang out with them is how we would put it in modern vernacular and verbiage. He just came to hang out with them. And the Bible says they would hear the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. I don't know what that sound, I don't know if it was the, you know, the literal walking or if it was something that happened in the air. I don't know, but they knew, they knew. And they would come running every day to be with their fathers. That makes sense. Yeah. But on this day, they had been disobedient for the very first time. And instead of running to God, they hide from God. So God asks Adam the question, where are you? And the Lord doesn't lack the information. If he ever asks you a question, it's not because God doesn't know. He's trying to get you to know. Where are you? We're hiding from you because we're afraid. We're naked and we're ashamed. Who told you that you were naked? Adam blames his wife. The woman, you gave me. Like, actually, it's your fault, Lord. And then she goes, well, the serpent talked me into it. And then the Lord actually pronounces a curse. 
curse on man, curse on woman, and then there's a curse on the world, but he also talks directly to the serpent and not just to the snake, but that the serpent allowed the enemy to use him to do what happened. So he's speaking to the serpent, but he's also speaking to the devil. And so then we pick it up. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's the prophecy. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And out of context, it makes very little sense. Like the Lord is talking to the serpent and yet it gets much bigger. You will strike his heel. He will crush your head. So in the moment, we don't know what that means exactly. But through space and time, we realize that he is Jesus and that the enemy would strike his heel on the cross by crucifying Christ. But in the actual crucifixion of Jesus was the mortal head wound that was given to the devil. That by his death and resurrection, Satan is forever defeated. So I get asked this question from time to time. Can the devil read your mind? The answer here is no way. If he had known what the outcome of God's plan would be, no way would he have crucified Jesus. Because in crucifying Jesus, it was a mortal wound to the devil himself. The devil is forever defeated because Jesus is alive. Man lost the authority that God gave us when we listened to the liar. And Jesus came back and took the authority back. The Bible says he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave back. And he gave us the authority back. So our job while we wait for heaven, is to exercise God's authority on this earth. And how do we do that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever it looks like in heaven is what it should be like on the earth. Is there disease in heaven? Then we should pray for healing on the earth. Is there hatred in heaven? Then we should forgive on the earth. So it really is a more simple gospel than we make it many times. But prophetically speaking, what God was saying was that from the very beginning of time, the very beginning, he knew what was going to happen. And from the very beginning of time, he came up with the way to fix what would happen. The Bible says, through one man, sin entered the world. Through one man, life. Adam to Jesus. It's prophetically, it's scary. Let me read this to you. This is Colossians Chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. So when the Bible says you'll strike his heel, he will crush your head. Do we have a picture of what that might look like? Colossians 2, 13 through 15 gives us a picture and speaks directly to what Jesus did to the enemy. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. How many sins? Every sin you committed yesterday, Today and tomorrow, Jesus has forgiven us. One more time. You've been forgiven all your sins. All your sins. This is good news. It's better than half. Yes. And it's better than just the past. He's forgiven all of your sins through Jesus. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to his cross, right? The sin that was against us, the things that we have done, are doing, and will do, those handwriting of offenses that we are guilty, Jesus took them, nailed them to the cross, and took them out of the way. So the cliche that I use to make it portable, 
we got what he deserved and he took what we deserved. It's an easy way to kind of take it with you. So in this way, now look at the wording here. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them, embarrassed them, ridiculed them, humiliated them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Remember, you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Okay, to understand this a little bit, if you, if you just were to ever study this passage out, it's actually a military term. And we don't have movies today where they do this, but I remember watching uh, older movies where when a military commander disgraced himself or herself, the way that they handled it publicly they would do what is this word disarm and to embarrass. It's a military term, affect duomai in the Greek, and it means this. So the offending party would be stood up in front of all the troops, got his epilepsy on, got his medals on. The commander would reach up and rip the epilepsy off of his shoulders. You ever seen that type of movie? Grab the medals, rip them off, rip the pocket off, take away all of the ribbons, all of the things, and they do it publicly because what was done was public. And in so doing, you humiliate and embarrass the person who did it. Does that make sense? So that's the term that Jesus did right here. He took the enemy and the authority that he had in front of everybody, he ripped the authority off of his shoulders, took the stolen medals off of his chest and embarrassed him in front of all humanity. Called him out as a fraud. Stolen valor. And Jesus took back what belonged to him. So the enemy struck his heel, but Jesus crushed his head. How good is that right there, man? Let me give you the second one because it gets even more. By the way, that was 1,500 years B.C. Now, that wasn't spoken by God 1,500 years, but it was written by Moses 1,500 years before Jesus was born. 3,500 years ago. Uh, Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14. Look at, this is 700 years BC, approximately, right, right in there. Um, this is Isaiah's prophecy about the birth of Jesus, how it would happen, the miraculous behind it. Um, so let me read it to you, then I'll, I'll comment on it. So pull that up for me. Uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. Real quickly. Is this an everyday occurrence? <laughs> so we read this 2,000 years after it happens, and we, uh, we sanitize it. We make it like, oh, yeah, right on. I just, I am not trying to be disrespectful. I am not trying to be like, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put you in, get, get these words and think about it. Your child comes home. Your daughter, and says, I'm pregnant but I'm a virgin. Who did this? God. That in and of itself is sacrilegious. Yes? To think of God that way? That in and of itself, it's scandalous. We read it now and we have sanitized it. We've digitized it for sure. We watch movies about it all the time. We clean it up. We make it where it's just so normal. This is... There's no precedent for this, and there's no example of it after. 
One time in all of history does this happen. My point to you is 700 years BC, God is so accurate with who Jesus' mother is going to be, a virgin. This is not just like, hey, anybody, this will fit like five people in society. This will only fit one person. And it's scandalous to even think about this. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. So prophetically, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God is saying, here's the way it's going to happen. A virgin is going to conceive a child. She will give birth. It will be a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus literally has existed forever. He is God, but he's existed in the flesh for about 2000 years. And the mystery is called divinity. And he is 100% God, and he is also 100% man. And if you go, Pastor, explain that to me. Ha! (laughs) We are finite. He is infinite. Our minds are limited capacity. He is unlimited capacity. He explains it, and our first question is, how? (laughs) Well, it be. How? It be. (laughs) It's hard. There's a certain level where it is faith. It does take faith. But you're like, the only thing that we ever hold up in our lives, like, unless you can explain this to me fully, it's so hard for me to believe it. Everything around us takes a great deal of faith. Tell me how the government spends money. Exactly. That's not a Republican Democrat statement. That's government, man. How do they spend money? It be. (laughs) Not for the good. So many things that we look at and we hold this story up to, unless you can explain it to me so that I can thoroughly understand it, I am explaining. He's God and can do anything. What's impossible with man is possible with God. That's just... That's it. And this is how he chose to do it. And he gives us the signs and the signals and the exact 700 years before it happens. Now, here would be my question to you. He tells through the prophecy, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. But his name is not Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. So if I read to you the way we know a scripture is accurate is that it comes true, a prophecy is accurate, is that it comes true, then maybe the question would be, if it said you're going to call him Emmanuel, why is his name Jesus? Okay, so let me, I'll teach you here real quickly. In Hebrew, the word name, N-A-M-E, has two meanings to it. One is the physical name. Eric, that's your name. John, that's your name. Leslie, that's your name. Okay, so it does mean names are important, by the way, too. If you're going to name a child, pick a name, listen, that has to do with what you believe the destiny and the nature of the child is. For this reason, name doesn't just mean a physical name. It literally means nature, destiny, who the person is at the root. So Jesus, his name His nature and his character is that he is God with us. Let me give you one other scripture to help you understand this. The same prophet Isaiah, two chapters later in chapter 9, 
says this familiar script. This is also prophecy about Jesus. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called. Most translations say his name will be. What will his name be? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's not Jesus's name, but it's his nature and character. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. So when it says prophetically, his name will be Emmanuel. Yes, his nature and character is he is God with us. So it's accurate. It's purely accurate. I think it's so powerful. It's so good. It's so right. His name, his character, God with us. Now, let me give you one more. This is Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, excuse me, Micah 5, 2. This gets even more um, pinpoint in that this is 800 years BC, approximately, and this predicts where Jesus will be born. 800 years before. This is where Jesus will be born. Micah 5, 2. Pull it up for me. Bethlehem Ephrata. You are too little to be among the family groups of Judah, but from you, one, capital, one will come who will rule for me in Israel. His coming was planned long ago from the very beginning of time. Remember Genesis 3.15, you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. From the beginning of time, it has been God's plan to send Jesus to rescue us. The very beginning of time. And here we have God predicting 800 years before Jesus is born, where he'll be born at. Bethlehem, I've, even today, it's a dink of a town. You could blink your eyes and go through it and not even know that you went through it. At that time, it probably fits inside of this room. It literally is a few houses. And here's the thing that God did Somebody had to have their eye on this for 800 years. I don't know about you. Keeping my eye on a situation for a month is difficult. You? 800 years? I mean, think, I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the, the what are the odds that this is going to come true 800 years later, exactly like it was spoken? Somebody has to have their finger on this, and a human can't do it. So... This little dink town, the only way that the Lord can get this family back there is to use government to do his will. It can happen. We have faith. It can happen. So he causes Caesar to want to do a census, and he requires that everyone underneath Roman occupation needs to go back to the town they were born in, to the father's hometown. So let's read this scripture. This is Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So God speaks this 800 years. That time goes by. And then God says, now's the time and brings it all together so that it can happen. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. The truth of the matter is, Jesus should have been born in Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's the town that he grew up in. But prophecy said he has to be born in 
Bethlehem. One of the reasons that the Jewish leaders missed him in his time was that they never investigated where he was born at. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. So they said the scriptures say that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. And they only saw Nazareth. They never investigated that he was born in Bethlehem. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So they're engaged. They're not married yet. And she's pregnant. It's a scandal. And her understanding of this is that an angel came and told me, I'm going to have God's son. So we read it now, and it is so civilized, and it is so sanitized. And this is a scandal and a mess 2,000 years ago. Yeah. This is hard to believe. This is hard to conceive. It's hard to think. How, you ever look and you think to yourself, how could God use this? Yeah. This is such a mess. He specializes in messes. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm a big one. Cleaned up a mess. So while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we see this story on television. We see it on Christmas cards. Uh, our children see it in cartoons. Uh, it, it, it's so sanitized, but we don't realize the struggle that this... I'll just give you an example. This girl, we, we think of this having taken place in maybe four to seven days. This is probably a couple of months easy. To do a census at that time, there's no computers. There's no way to trace this down quickly. To go from Nazareth to Bethlehem by bus takes several hours. To go by foot... On a Christmas card, they always put Mary on a donkey, yes or no? Yes. You know, there's no scripture that says that. When they got there, they paid a tax that was for the poor, not the wealthy. So the chances of them owning an animal to get Mary there were slim. Chances are a pregnant woman, late term, walked from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Compelled to do so. She didn't go into labor as soon as they got there. She wanted to labor after they were there while they're trying to take the census. I mean, look, the amount of time that God had to do this is so finite, and he did it exactly as he said he was going to. We live in the day where uh, there's betting commercials on TV constantly. Bet on this, bet on that. What do you think the over-under was? <laughs> I'll use anything to make a point. What do you think it was for this to happen the way that it said it's going to happen? So we read this and we don't appreciate how finite, how, how exact this was. It's so easy to read it and to lose behind it the miraculous birth that took place here. Not just a birth, but how God did it through a virgin in Bethlehem. Here's his name. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's going to look like. He will save his people from their sins. Yeah. The enemy's going to strike his heel, but he will crush his head. Think about it. It's powerful. It is so wonderful. And I, I just think the church, it's like uh, the closer we are to an event, the more we appreciate it. And the hard thing is the further from the event you get, 
the harder it is to stay intense on it. So like uh, the nation's birthday, 1776, right? And in 1777, people celebrating, they're excited because just a year ago this happened. But now we celebrate it and tell me that 250 years later, it's not more or less a holiday for most people, a reason to shoot fireworks off. I think that older people can identify what it's about, but a lot of younger people aren't even like it's just a federal holiday. And so we, we lose the meaning of it the further from the event that we get. Church, listen to me. I think it's easy for the church to lose the meaning from it too the further we get. We appreciate it, but it's not intense in our heart. So how Advent is to prepare your heart again for the intensity of what God is doing in our lives. Is that, Steve, that me? Diane, that? So we, we prepare uh, our hearts. All right, so now, it, let me just say this. If... This prophecy about the birth of Jesus was true and accurate, and we know that it was. How? Because it happened, and it happened like God said. Then here's where I want to turn the message uh, real quick. What is God saying prophetically about the coming of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords? So this is not all the scriptures on this subject. It, this is not exhaustive by any means. I picked uh, three, six, seven scriptures that... Um, that are just really plain to see and open to see. So how do we know a prophecy is accurate? It comes to pass. Here's my point. If the Bible has been accurate 1,500 years, 800 years, and 700 years to the nth degree of the prophecy, then is there some reasonable conclusion a person can draw that the things it's saying about the future are going to come to pass too? Is that, did you get that? Okay, so let me just, I'll read these to you and comment. Revelations 1, 7. Uh, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. How many people will see him? Everyone will see him. Even those who pierced him. Think about that. Think about the accuracy of that. Jesus was pierced. Isaiah predicted he would be pierced and the gospels tell us he was pierced. And the Bible says even those who pierced him will see him. And then look, all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. This doesn't mean to be sad. This means that in an awesome way, people are going to realize this is happening. Jesus is returning. The one thing that will settle all arguments on the earth is who comes back to the earth. If it is Jesus, it is irrefutable. Yes? You will not be able to argue with it. That's the mourning, the seriousness of it's great but it's great because it's awesome. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Pastor John wasn't messing. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 28. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. That's why I said he died yesterday. He died yesterday for our sins, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's taken away all the sins once and for all. Look at the next sentence. He will come again. Say it with me. He will come again. Not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So look at me real quick. Look at me. This is important. Who is he coming for? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me tell you, one of the tricks of the enemy today is to weigh people down with the cares of this world. 
with the things going on in life, so much so that our attention is about making it through the day, not focusing on Jesus is about to reveal himself. Church, get ready. Be ready. I'm not manipulating you. I'm not twisting you. I'm not trying to get you to come to church. This is between you and God. Be ready. Jesus is coming back to the earth. So how can you be so sure? If it predicted accurately his birth, then why would you disbelieve when the Bible says he's coming again a second time? Why would you disbelieve that? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. How many of you in this room have lost a loved one? So raise your hand. Of course, all of us, right? Right? So here's what God is saying. I want you to know what happened to believers who have died so that you won't grieve. You can grieve, but don't grieve like people who have no hope. We have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, look, we also believe that when Jesus, what? Returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And then it gives more detail. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Uh, we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. That last sentence is important because for so many people, this is a fearful thing, not an exciting thing. I'm going to tell you why it's fearful to you, because you're not ready. If you're young and you think I got a lot of living to do, you don't know what living is. It won't be found in this earth. It'll be found in what God has planned for you for eternity. Believe me on this. Heaven is not a place where your spirit eats grapes and plays a harp. <laughs> Heaven is exciting. Heaven is fulfilling. Heaven is redemption. You will get back everything that's ever been taken. Every wrong that's ever been done will be righted. Every tear that's ever shed will have an answer. Every promise you feel like was broken will be fulfilled. All of the sentences that instead of having a period at it that have a question mark right now, God will make plain and clear to you. He will dry every eye and wipe away every tear. You will have every answer. Heaven will not be a place where you just go and rest. You won't wear a robe and sing. Heaven will be engaging. Heaven will be fulfilling. Heaven will be everything you ever wanted it to be. God's original intention for creation will take place fully in heaven. You won't struggle with things anymore. Your body won't hurt anymore. You won't have a broken heart ever again. So I, I, how does English, how do I get this across? It becomes superfluous trying to describe the finite trying to describe the infinite. How, how can you get it there? Uh, this is where the Holy Spirit has to do what he does. That's just, just so... Uh. All right, here, Titus 2.3. Here's a very small book in the New Testament. But here's what Titus has to say. 
while we wait for the blessed hope. This is a, you don't hear that uh, phrase very much anymore, but the blessed hope is this, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. He's going to appear again. All right, one more. Uh, Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Again, that is, if, if, if the Lord looking at your life and pronouncing judgment puts fear in you, your heart's in the wrong place. This doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can be a wonderful thing. It's like, God's going to judge me? Yes. And your answer is not going to be, I tried really hard. I, well, I was better than John Stubbs, that's for sure. <laughs> there, John. I, get, I help you for, yeah. So, <laughs> your answer, there only will be one answer. The only reason that I stand before you today is Jesus Christ. I put my faith and hope in Jesus. And the words you will hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into what I have prepared for you from the beginning of time. Hmm. It's John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me also. Jesus is talking. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Notice those words. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Okay, listen to this. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Nobody goes to heaven accidentally. Nobody will wake up and go, I, how, uh, I'm amazed. How did this happen? Heaven is intentional. So listen, Jesus died for every person's sin universally. Every person who's ever lived and will live. Jesus has died for their sin, but it's only applied in your life personally. I wished everybody went to heaven. I do. It would make my job that much easier. But I'm telling you the truth. Only people who apply this to their life will live eternally. Listen to me. The Old Testament, the Passover, is a picture of this. You took the blood of the Passover lamb and you applied it to the doorposts of your house and the angel of death passed over. That's where the term comes from, the Passover. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. You apply his blood that he shed on the cross. This is how the enemy struck his heel, but Jesus crushes his head. When you apply that to your life, death passes over you and you pass into life. Can I be any more plain on that? So Now look, if you're like, I don't like it, it's so narrow. Jesus actually said that. Narrow is the way. He also said this very narrow statement. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. That's narrow. But it's not hateful. It's truthful. And it's loving. And if we have proof that what is said happens, 
then why would we think this won't happen too? Is that? Okay. Last one, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. This is Paul teaching about communion. And uh, if you know anything about Paul, Paul said that he got these things directly from Jesus. So this is what he writes. Every time you eat this bread, he's quoting Jesus, and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he, what? It's all over scripture. It's all over scripture. Do you see it? Like I'm not twisting anything. I'm not making it say anything. I'm telling you the truth right now. So I planned a particular close for today. And I asked uh, Pastor JJ, I said, uh, instead of me just praying um, or just opening the altars up, I wanted to do it a little bit different today. My question is this for everybody, everybody, attenders, visitors, doesn't matter. I want to throw us all together for this one question. Where's your heart at? Where are you at with what I'm saying? Now, where are you at with me? Now, where are you at with organized religion? Now, where are you at with church? Where are you at with what I'm saying about Jesus? What do you believe about this? You can reject it all and walk out of here. and God will not stop you and God will not stop loving you. I'm not manipulating you. I gain nothing from this except to do my job well in front of you right now. I'm telling you the truth right now. Listen to me. What do you think about this? Jesus has died for every person. He loves you. The proof of God's love is that he sent Jesus for you. And whatever you choose to do with this, God will not stop loving you. And you won't answer to me ever. But you will stand before the Lord and give answer for what you do in this moment with this question. And that's just truth. He's the way and the truth. Do you want to apply this to your life? Do you want to move from death to life? The Bible records, uh, it's called having your name written in the Lamb's book, the Lamb who took away the sin of the world, the Lamb's book of life. He writes your name in it. And you choose. God is, he's the perfect gentleman in this. He won't force himself on you. I, I think my job is to make it compelling but to not act like I'm giving a speech and it doesn't matter. Like as soon as the time is over, you can go and who cares? I care. But more importantly, God cares about this moment. What will you do with it? This matters. How old are you? How old? 16. It matters when you're 16. How old are you? 70? 50. It matters when you're fit. You know what? <laughs> it's gray hair. <laughs> How old are you, mom? 78. It matters when you're 78. James Ruder, how old are you? 
matters when you're 55. Becca, 46. It's not an age deal here. How old are you? 11. Do you want to know the best time in the world to say yes to Jesus? When you're 11 years old. When you're 11 years old. Lainey, 13? 14. Forget my granddaughter's age. I knew I was just checking with you. 14. I know you love Jesus. Lane, you serve him your whole life, honey. Long after Papa's not doing this anymore, it will be true then. It will be true then. What do you want to do with this? And you can just say, Pastor, I'm not ready to make a decision. How can you turn away from love? My brother and my sister, if we never see each other again, if you never come back here again, that's not the point of this. It's what will you do when you stand before Jesus? Jay's going to play this song, and I don't want you to stand. And I'd like you, if you would, not to cut and run real quick. I know the temptation is there. I know there's a game on, I know. But more important than all the events outside of these doors is what the Lord wants to do, listen, in a holy moment. We have a holy moment where something life-changing can happen for people. It can happen for you. When Jay plays this song, all I want you to do is in your heart, just ask the question, am I ready? Am I looking for the return of the Lord? Is my heart ready? Has my life been given to him? Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, I will come inside. The two of us will be together. He literally stands at the door of your heart and he knocks right now. And if the Lord is opening your ears and your eyes to hear and to see, what will you say to that? Will you say yes to Jesus today? Will you ask the Lord for his grace and his mercy? Will you tell him that you want your name written in his book of life? If you say, Pastor, I don't know the words. I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's the beautiful part about this. God's not interested in you reciting something or quoting something. He wants the words from your heart. So maybe it sounds like this. God, help me. God, forgive me. Father, be merciful to me. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe. I trust. I apply it to my life. There's not a right way or a wrong way. I feel compelled to do this. If you say, Pastor, that's me. 
and I need this in my life, and I'd like you to remember me when you pray right now. I won't embarrass you, but I want to pray. Just would you lift your hand real quickly? Pray for me, John. Yeah, there's many, many of us. There's many of us. Many. I see you. I see you all. You can put them back down. Even if you couldn't raise your hand and you want in on this prayer. So Father, I pray for everyone who recognizes they hear you knocking right now. They can see and they say yes. Would you pour out your mercy and would you pour out your grace right now? God, would you forgive our sins? God, could we experience your love today? Father, for young and for old, men and for women, people who are far away and people who are close, would you do what you do so well? Would you bring us into your family? Would you pour out your grace and mercy on us today? God, we love you. God, some of us, we understand those words so easily and it makes so much sense. And for others, all they know is that they feel you tugging on their heart right now. <laughs> it's all equal because it's all the work of God. Father, do what you do right now. And as we sing this song, reconcile us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Just keep your hearts in a place of hearing. Don't want you to stand. Don't want you to cut. Just for this song, this moment, give it to God. I will make room for you To do whatever you want to And here is where I lay 
chasing now This is my surrender Whatever you want to, Jesus, I will make room for you and you alone. Come do whatever you want to. the ground of all my tradition break down the walls of all my religion because your way is better yeah your way is better and shake up the ground of all my tradition break down the walls of all my religion because your way is better oh jesus Shake up the ground of all my tradition Break down the walls and all my religion Cause your way is better Yeah, your way is better Come shake up the ground of all my tradition Break down the walls of all my religion Cause your way is better Yeah, your way is better I'll make more room for you right here, right now. Come do whatever you want to in me. Come do whatever you want to in this room. I will make room for you and you alone. Do whatever you want to. Jesus, we just turn it all to you right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give every single one of us renewed eyes to see, our eyes to see for the first time, your goodness, your mercy. Lord, I pray that everything that Pastor John just shared, Lord, straight out of your word. Who you are, what you've done, and what you're going to do, Lord, that that would be on the forefront of everything that we live out of, everything that we move, everything that we seek you in, Jesus, is that you are the truth, and you are the way, and you are the life. And that we would not find ourselves satisfied or trying to be satisfied by anything else but that. I pray that you would fill up every open space inside of us, Lord, and help us to see how we can make that room, Lord, not just a song, but make more room for you and you alone, Lord, to fill. We love you. We honor you. We glorify you. 
Let us walk out of here more aware of this when we leave than in this room right now, in Jesus' name, amen.